1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Ayelet Zohar about her book, The Curious Case of the Camel in Modern Japan, which traces the use of camels in the visual vocabulary of Japan's definition of itself in the world, especially vis-a-vis Asia in the modern period. All right, uh, Dr. Zohar, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Uh, So the first thing I'd like to ask you is about the genesis of the project that became The Curious Case of the Camel. Uh, How did you become interested in this issue, uh, in the sort of representation of camels in modern Japan and the connection to uh, colonialism, to uh, Orientalism, uh, and the subjects that you discuss in the book?
2: Thank you for having me and inviting me for this uh, discussion. And uh, I'm very glad to be here. And uh, to answer your question, um, in 2010, I returned back to Israel after a decade in the aglophone world. I did my PhD in London, and then I was on a postdoc at Stanford. So spent a few years in England and in the UK and then in the USA. And upon returning, um, my thoughts were that I would like to sort of emphasize or position myself as a Middle Eastern uh, researcher. I live in a different part of the world and I have um, different views, different background. And so I started to look into the question of how Japan or how Japanese art historically and contemporary represented issues concerning Um, the Muslim world, the Arab world, and the Palestinian world. And I became interested in a few aspects. Um, I have a long article written about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in Japanese cinema. And uh, then I started to look into different aspects of representation. And by the time I was sort of involved in this, I hit upon... A series by Noguchi Rika um, of photographs she took at Sharjah during the two thousand and eight Biennale. She went out to the to the desert and took a series of photographs of uh, camels that actually are being held by guest workers living in um, Sharjah and uh, presented that as a series of camel images during the Biennale and then it was on display at the National uh, Museum in Tokyo, the new branch in um, Nogizaka. So, um, and I saw it, I think, first time in Ogizaka and then I contacted her, but I was stunned. I was stunned at the way she represented that. I was stunned at the fact that there was no disclosure that the people dressed in uh, galabia, standing next to the camels, are actually guest workers from Pakistan or from other um, uh, poor countries. And that it was presented as an exotic item for the Japanese audience. And then I think in the very same... No, actually, two or three years late, um, earlier when I was um, in Hiroshima, obviously I went to the um, museum, the Peace Memorial Museum, which is the main museum for the memory of the atomic bomb in uh, Hiroshima. And upon entering the main lobby before you go and buy your ticket, there's a huge mural of seven meters wide, of camels, a camel caravan, which is uh, displayed at the very entry to that um, museum, and I was stunned. I mean, the atomic bomb museum in Hiroshima, such a serious and important place in Japanese history and Japanese experience and Japanese trauma. Why camels? How do they arrive there? What's the reason to put a camel mural? And the two things, I mean, the the exotic series by Noguchi and the um, mismatch of the Hirayama Ikuo mural at the entry to the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum struck me as something that could be interested, interesting to look into and probably... Um, rewrite the genealogy of camel images in Japan and how these two cases came to be. And therefore, I started to delve into this image. And obviously, you know, coming from the Mediterranean and camels are mostly associated with the area. I'm coming from the dromedary camels, obviously. And um, camels in general, the the Bactrian uh, associated with Central Asia and the Dromedaries associated with the Middle East, um, both cases um, in the Japanese mind, as I started to delve into it and understand it, were signifiers of Asia in a general way. And that also kind of said to me, okay, you can probably find some very interesting aspects of this image in the Japanese imagination. And of course, imagination, because until 1895, well, earlier in 1821, the real first camels came to Japan, but that was on a small scale in kumisemono so people saw it on a lunar park, sort of road, roadside shows, um, circumstances. But uh, in 1895, the camels arrived as trophies from the Japanese, first Japanese Sino War, and um, they were displayed in the Ueno Zoo. And so that shifted into a kind of a modern context. But until 1894, 5, camels were still very imaginary and um, freak kind of uh, context in the Japanese imagination and were not something that uh, Japanese could relate to as an animal in the sense that you think of a horse or a chicken. So all these elements were kind of triggers to my journey into the image of the camel in the Japanese context.
1: Great, thank you. And that also provides uh, a nice preview of some of the things we're going to be talking about, including, for example, uh, your final chapter where you get to thinking uh, specifically about Hirayama and Noguchi's images, um, and also the sort of introduction of actual uh, camels and how that changes the imaginary, uh, the ways that those fit into questions about colonialism, empire, war, uh, Orientalism. Um, But before we get to all of those things, uh, I want to think a little bit about uh, some of the issues uh, that you lay out in your introduction uh, and re- address again in the conclusion. Um, so overall, you know, as we've established, you're looking at the visual vocabulary uh, of camels uh, as a part of the sort of definition of Japan's self in the world, especially vis-a-vis Asia, um, and looking mostly at the way that this sort of bridges across from that pre-actual camel imaginary to the post-actual camel imaginary, uh, the Edo period to the present. Um, So you're using these camels as sort of the representations of camels as a lens to view the ways that Japan has attempted to sometimes leave, sometimes conquer Asia on the one hand, uh, and also in some ways, to find solidarity, right, to do this sort of pan Asianist move, uh, this shared Oriental or Asian identity on the other, and I thought this complexity is is well summarized in the title, uh, parentheses D, colonialism, uh, Orientalism, and imagining Asia. Um, what so so? What about camels specifically for you is illustrative of the relationship uh, between. Japan, uh, and the sort of representations of a Japanese self uh, vis-a-vis Asia. Um, and I think this is the main thing that we need to sort of understand it to, you know, thematically before we get into the chapters.
2: Okay, So um, f- what I saw and understand, or my interpretation of the camel comes from um, a sort of association of the camel with the strange, the bizarre, something that doesn't, there's not such animal, so to speak. Actually, you know, if you look into um, Nara, Jedi, Nara period um, images, um, I was surprised to find out that in the um, uh, Shotoku's history, There is an indication in the text of camels. Rakuda is written in kanji. But the animal you see there is blue with white spots and horns coming from its forehead, etc. So imaginary was really imaginary. There was no clue how uh, a camel can look like. And then... uh, a process of contacts with China provides more information because camels, at least in the western part of China, did exist and were the vehicle of the transportation into Central Asia, etc. So some hints are coming, but still it's a very strange. And so it embodies something about strangeness, otherness, and something that p- probably puts japan vis-a-vis asia because it doesn't exist here and so we can take this animal as a metonym for the asian continent um, specifically japan was in contact with china so it becomes something that locates china and i think uh, there was a recent uh, exhibition at norwich the Sainsbury institute of japanese art and uh, which called nara to norwich and they specifically did establish this contact for the Nara Jedi for the Nara period with uh, China, and how the transportation or the transfer of ideas and objects from China to Japan started a whole game that will probably end by 1895 with a war, with an attempt to dissect this embryo, em, embryo cord between China and Japan that existed for uh, a millennia, a millennium plus. And um, so when camels were associated with uh, Asia at the early period, it was imaginary, it was exotic, but it was also somehow how astonishing and very um highly associated camels with musical troops, camels that um were going west, etc. And then by the time we arrive in Edo, and this is where actually my book starts and you know goes into details, um, it goes through a fil- <clears throat> sorry, it goes through a filter of Dutch knowledge, so you know the books coming in with uh, the Linnaeus categorization, the list of animals, the four-legged animals, etc. And camel is there, so the um, information or the association of camel is in with is within the context of science and how scientific knowledge dictates the image of the camel. It stops to be exotic, and now it is part of the categorization associated with modernity. And it will probably stay there until 1829, sorry, 1821, when the first pair of camels landed in Japan. And that brings a boom. And uh, this boom is um, on two levels. First, with the Dutch knowledge and with the experience of drawing live, we have a bunch of painters and people who make the journey to Nagasaki to meet the, fa- the, the camels in person and draw them and give a list of their um, bodies and uh, different measurements and uh, sort of social history of camels written on the side of these images. And um, we have uh, a bunch of uh, prints, which are obviously being distributed on large scale. A lot of people buy these camel images, including a story that I uh, quoted called um, The World of the Camel, Rakodama Sekai, and where the camel is associated with bringing Peace and love to a family ridden with quarrels and fighting, and so the camel is associated with a sort of a good spirit to to bring in. But in the context of the Misemono, the road shows, um, still keeps it as a freak animal. It's something that is de- being displayed alongside. Uh, dolls and freaks and other um, people with disabilities that are being shown on these uh, shows are dolls of uh, different um, animations etc so it is being kept away from the I was I would say mundane context and um, being set into this kind of circus or sideshow or something which is completely being held in the bizarre. So on one hand, the attempt to draw the camels from um, in the Western sense of reality by looking at and then drawing the contact of eye hand in the sense of being um, physical and realistic. And on the other hand, keeping the real animals in the context of circus and uh, road shows. And then it becomes a negative metonymy in the sense that once Japan starts its modernist journey and it has to adopt or have it, it attempts to redefine its place in the world in the sense that. Now we are on an attempt or journey to associate ourselves with the white world, the European world, because this world suggests a hierarchy. It suggests difference. It suggests categorization. It puts the white up and the the black down and puts the so-called yellow in between somewhere. And our attempt is to take this scale, take it, um, transform it into temporal and attempt to reach the higher levels of the white. And therefore, part of this scheme that is now being transplanted into the Japanese mind during the modernization and the transformation going on after the Meiji Ishin, the Meiji Revolution, I will call it, um, is that um, Japan must identify itself with Europe and stop its identification with Asia. And therefore, anything Asian is low and anything Japanese must be high and associated with the high. And therefore, the camels will soon reach the lower levels. And as I mentioned, they were trophies to the Japanese Um, victory in the Sino-Japanese, First Sino-Japanese War in 1894- 95, brought to Ueno, and people came to see them as trophies from the continent, from something that signified the Japanese victory, and from that point on, camels came in large quantities, and we can find them in tourist venues like uh, Oshima, uh, camels being uh, list of burden with uh, seats provided for the tourists to climb climb up the mountain under a tourist uh, venue, kept in zoological gardens for uh, research, etc. So a transformation in this period, the period of Japanese modernization between um, 1868, the Meiji uh, revolution in 1945, the, um, the end of war, etc., is um, a very lowly look, very um, unflattering view of the camel so on one hand it is in japan in large amounts for um the tourist venues Uh, by the way and up today you can find camels in tourist venues like totori and i mentioned that in my uh um last chapter or my uh conclusion because it somehow didn't stop to be it's um to, to occupy this kind of um Strange animal, and therefore kept in tourist venues, is something that tells us about the association or the dis- distance being experienced through this um, to- towards this animal. And uh, Totori, which is holds sand dunes on the western part of Japan, is sort of uh, the Japanese desert, so to speak, and therefore camels. Do match, and but the, the practice of using camels in tourist venues started already in the 1930s when Japan invaded uh, Manchuria and occupied a territory and had uh, plenty of settlements and agricultural production, industrial production, etc. And camels were kind of associated with this Manchurian journey in Manchuria itself after 19. 19- um 1937, with the second Sino-Japanese War and the invasion of Japan into China, camels were also recruited into the military. And so they became beasts of burden associated with the military, with certain troops riding camels, and in other places, camels, again, as beasts of burden, with carts and cannons and, you know, carrying the Japanese, uh, whatever they needed. So. Um, again, in this context, it is a lowly um, uh, image and we have the whole range from the um, early Nara or before Nara, Asuka, Asoka period when camels are completely imaginary. They become fantasized and then they become real and then they become lowly. And there will still be the exoticized and um, uh, different associations in the post war. So I think this journey of a single image from something that, um, that, that shifts and reflects the associations of Japan connecting itself to Asia, distancing itself from Asia, this but a strange journey is also um, very interesting. And I will put something in parentheses here. Coming from Israel, I'm very aware of this kind of ambivalent relationship with Asia. Israel is an versus Japan, different to Japan, is an immigrant country with people immigrating from Europe and people immigrating from Arab countries. But its relationship with the place where it is geographically located in the western part of Asia or the Middle East, as it is called in the colonial uh, tradition, is very complex. Israel is geographically in Asia, but it always had this kind of attempt to be part of Europe or associate itself in Europe, Eurovision, Euroleague, in the basketball teams, etc. And most Israelis will not refer to themselves as Asians or living in Asia. So, What Japan is going through, and by the way, most Japanese today will not associate themselves with Asia. So um, in a certain way, I do recognize the Japanese discourses on being part or not being part of Asia, this complexity and ambivalence as part of something I grew up with. And it's easy for me to, again, take this very special point of view that um, I belong to and relate to to Japan from this uh, position.
1: Yeah, that uh, Japan-Israel comparison is a fascinating one. I had actually wondered about whether that was sort of part of what was going on in your in your mind as you address these issues in the book. Yeah, so thank you. You've taken us through um, some of the main themes of actually the first three chapters. uh, And I wanted to go back Uh, specifically to chapters two and three, I think those are sort of the most important for, uh, just to to go back and look at a couple things here. Um, You've talked through the sort of introduction of camels in 1821, uh, the first actual pair of camels brought to Japan. This is uh, the beginning of chapter two, uh, which is called Entering Closed Doors, the arrival of the first pair in Nagasaki, and their depiction in the late Edo period, uh, 1821 to to 68. Um, And There's a lot going on in this chapter, uh, and some of which you've already addressed. I wanted to to see if we could just focus down on a couple of the sections that were particularly interesting for me. Uh, One, having formerly lived in Nagoya, I was very interested in uh the contrast you drew between the ways that those camels were treated in edo the capital that's now tokyo and now in other words between the sort of carnivalesque way they were uh, represented on the one hand and the sort of highbrow way on the other and you also have this really interesting section on the sort of use value of the camel in the souvenir market so i wonder if we could talk a little bit about that to understand Uh, some of the complexity that you've talked about in the early uh, uh, relationship with these actual camels in Japan.
2: Okay, so um, I used two small manuscripts to discuss the the Edo and the Nagoya. And the Nagoya one is a very complex and very detailed um, introduction into camels where the author is actually... Um, taking us into a journey into the misemono itself. It was a special celebration of camels and their um, presence in a special misemono in uh, Nagoya. They arrived in 1826 and uh, a special display was uh, set up in Osman Park. With big signs and long queues, which are all described in the in the drawings accompanying the text of the book, and uh, we see the excitement. the 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 audience is coming, old and young, men and women, rich and poor. Everyone is queuing up to walk the distance from the temple into the display. And um, once they arrive in the place, they have to sit down and, um, I mean, I, they had to buy the tickets and then to, to wait in queues for rounds. They sit down in the tent where um, three um, stewards, I would say, uh, are in charge of the camels. They're all dressed in Chinese exotic dress. They have... Chinese instruments with them and they bring the camels into the arena um, kind of making a few rounds um, in the space where the uh, audience was seated and the audience had the opportunity to feed the camels. They could buy daikon, the Japanese radish, outside and when the camels were doing the round they could feed them with their radishes and uh have a kind of a more personal contact with the camel this way. And um, during the time that they were doing the round um, in the arena, um, music was on play um, with drums and cymbals and flutes and um, three rounds in the arena and they could go out. (coughs) And the... um, audience at that point will probably cheer and uh, go out. And once they went out of this small display of the three rounds in the arena, they will find um, a series of displays and shops that were selling camel souvenirs. So the first display was not just of a camel, but also of an elephant, Prepared with uh, feathers. There was like a real size model of a camel made with feathers, kind of real. I mean, from the drawing in the book, it seems very realistic, but it was made of feathers. I believe it was chicken feathers or, you know, some sort of uh, cheap um, animal feathers being collected. And um, carrying on, they will go into a small um, display of camels as toys. Some people had um, uh, market stalls that uh, showed camels as uh, little uh, toys, probably could be bought as souvenirs to to be taken home or given to children to play with. Then there was a display of a camel on a cart made with fabric and kind of, you know, sometimes I don't know if it's common in America but or, or elsewhere, but in Israel we have these um, wind, wind people that are on display in, you know, celebrations, a special machine that blows wind into nylon sack or something and you kind of get... A, Human image. And so it was something along these lines. It was actually a blown camel with wind or with some air locked in a fabric that was on a cart and was uh, traveling around town during times of festival, like Mikoshi, you know, they take different displays. So, camel was also one taken around the Misemono at this time uh, with fabric. There were camels, uh, combs, um, hair combs uh, in the shape of camels where the top part was a double hump to display um, the camels. And, oh, by the way, the two camels arriving in Japan in 1821 were dromedary and they came through Dutch channels from Persia, apparently. And um, so this was even more strange or unique or exotic because it was camels of Western Asia rather than the more known camels of China and Central Asia of the Bactrian, st- Bactrian type, which is double-hamped. So these specific ones were single-hamped and uh, really coming from um, a strange place in the Japanese mind in um, Asia. So, um, after these uh, little comps, um, and there were other uh, souvenirs made of clay. Um, They were becoming uh, very popular as kind of, uh, I guess, uh, people like to collect, uh, first of all, souvenirs from omiyage, as they call it in Japan, is a very common practice that you kind of take a small souvenir from um, an activity or an event or a special place you visited. So you want to take something that will remind you of that very special experience, but also something that can be extended to um, display of curiosities in the sense that we think of it of um, the Wunderkammer in uh, Western style. So people collected different things that they have, been at home, or toys for children that they could play with as um, a toy animal. In the Edo, um, cameras were on display at Ryogoku. Ryogoku was a section of Edo across the river, and um, it was a, an area dedicated to misemono, the road shows. And it was constantly um, a place where people were going to, for the sake of um, special activities or special shows, every time they had an announcement of the special display, they will have this month or uh, this season, etc. Even today, by the way, um, the sumo arena is in Lyogoku and the big uh, Edo Tokyo Museum is also and that part. So it kind of, you know, it lost, of course, the Misemona per se. But um, the fact that people travel to Lyogoku to see small um, um, competitions is um, definitely kind of, uh, for me at least, in my imagination, links uh, this place with um, this kind of activities that are entertainment and um, off duty, and something that also connects to uh, the past of um, Japanese practices. Nevertheless, um, the display in Ryogoku uh, generated multiple uh, prints. The um, what we call the ukiyo-e, the uh, the prints that were uh, ubiquitous in Edo from the 17th century onwards to the 19th century. They ceased to be at the early 20th century when photography took over. And that is also an interesting relationship between photography and prints and the kind of similar function that they both had. Despite the fact, you know, that what we call Japanism, the French painters in the 19th century being excited about the visuality and the style and the tradition of the Ukiyo-e prints, in the Japanese tradition, they were like the cheapest and the lowest. And, you know, the, the prints were to be distributed for low price in large quantities, very um, large editions, like hundreds of prints from each uh, model, each um, uh, image that was uh Painted were distributed to the audience, so I can imagine that outside the ryogoku misemono of the camels were stalls that were selling these um, prints to the audience who wanted to take the souvenirs. Versus the ones in Nagoya that were more about objects. Here we had prints. Uh, Kuniyoshi had a series of. Really beautiful uh, prints of camels in different uh, positions, with head up and head down, and being fitted and being ridden, and so so on. And um, so, in the display itself, um, I think um, it was more of at least from the the books or the images that I have about the display, not the camels, but the way it was presented, they were on a stage and not having the activity like we had in Nagoya, they were more like set to be seen standing more or less still without any special activity and the crowd cheered them up and, it was a real crowd. It was very, very dense and uh, people shouted and excited and it seems like the crowd was uh, really um, in high spirits when they encountered the camels firsthand and saw them on stage. The stage is heightened, is higher than the audience. The audience is on a lower level and the camels are on a higher level being displayed to the audience. And another thing that was going on in Lyogoku is that that they collected the urine of the camels and um, it was said to have very powerful medicinal qualities that if you drank the camel urine, you will recover different diseases, but especially it was recommended for um, love relations. Camels came in a couple, and they were grasped at that time as very peaceful and very um, quiet animals. And, you know, being in a pair, it was associated with good domestic relationship and so the drinking of the urine of a pair of cam from the pair of camels was associated with bringing peace to your domestic relationship and that book um, uh, the world of the camel is actually taking uh, a long story so it tells um, probably partly fictional partly truthful that The camels came to Japan by a Dutch man who wanted to give them as a present to his mistress, his lover, before he departed back to Holland and back to his family and his wife in Holland. But he was in love with this woman and he wanted to look after her. And so he brought the camel as a present to her and a source of income so that she could have the displays in Nagasaki, sell tickets, and um, um, make her own ends meet. However, the woman felt overwhelmed by the presence of the camels. She couldn't handle it. She decided to sell them. And so um, the Ryogoku merchants came over, and they made the journey from Nagasaki to Ryogoku in Edo, and started this display and he carries on so because the root of the um coming of the camels is also associated with love relationship this dutchman is giving his gift to his uh, japanese lover so that also i think tinted the presence of the camels with this association of um love and peace and something that could be um a medical a medicine for um, ill relationships at home, and therefore a good reason to drink the urine of camels to uh, relieve the pains uh, people felt. So to this place, in, in a way very similar in the the way they put um, exotic aspect up front, but also probably associated with local. Um, um beliefs and practices and daily life um uh routines they were also very different to each other
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stot or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks dot com.
1: Yeah, um, so you you mentioned in their photography, which is one of the things that I wanted to get to in chapter three, and there's actually sort of two transformative uh, uh, changes Uh, in that period 1868 to to 1945 that you talk about one of them is photography Uh, and i wanted to ask what what kind of repercussions does that have for representations of the camel particularly vis-a-vis this idea this ideology i guess of realism um, and the other is uh, the the opening of the ueno zoo right japan's first zoo in 1882 it seems to me that those are both sort of pivotal uh in understanding the camel sort of the the, the social imaginary of the camel in japan i wonder if you could talk about those two
2: the bringing of the camels in um 1895 to the ueno zoo brings a whole new context to understanding the camels. As I mentioned before, the zoological garden, and there's wonderful discussion of this in Japanese studies on the shift between um, the rocho, the misemono, and the zoological garden as part of the modernization of Japan, the move from an Asian space into a modern space, which is associated with the West. And so the zoological garden is an educated and enlightened and scientific, or in other words, a modern space. And therefore, the audience is expected to be educated and act, behave itself in a rational, reasonable way, N- versus the audience I mentioned in the museum that was completely going out of their minds and being excited and cheering and jeering and being um, on top of their heads. The audience in the zoo is um, well composed and educated and coming to see the camels from, let's say, a scientific or educational point of view. So there I have a couple of images from the zoos. First of all, they were produced as postcards. I mentioned before how photography took over the role of the print. So this is a very good example. If the Lyogoku um, was marketing or uh, selling um, images of camels in um On uh, prints, uh, the Kiyue prints, um, in the zoo, you could buy postcards of uh, photographic images of camels that were, um, I believe, sold on the museum shop or just outside the museum. So there are plenty of um, photographs on. On uh, postcards. That um, this is part of what I collected uh, specifically. There's a museum of photograph of uh, postcards in Osaka, which was providing me with uh, dozens of these uh, postcards, which I found to be very exciting. So when we look at the postcards, we see the cameras in the cages in the display in the zoo as something to be explored in a more kind of distant or um, scientific or educational point of view. And pictures that I have from the zoo proper, not as postcards, but from the archives of the zoo, show families with children. Obviously, you know, we take the children to see the animals as part of their education, understanding the diversity of this planet. And but the, the adults are all dressed in Western style in suits or trousers and uh, jackets etc. The women in kimono, um, still the Meiji style, the separation of dress. But they're all standing in front of the camels and looking at them at kind of curious gaze, I would say, and educational in the sense that they're trying to. Study the cameras. Look at them with a curious eye. How they look like, and how they are probably. How do they compare to other known animals, say horses, and. Um, but the camels are actually not very well displayed because one of them is with a head down behind, behind the the fence. You don't see the camels so much, but you see the audience and this kind of, and the camera is behind the audience. And so it's a strange relationship because if you compare it to the prints where the camels are up front, they're the centerpiece, all the attention is on the camels and the the accessories or the the caregivers uh, around them. But in the photography, the emphasis is uh, on the educated audience that comes to see now the camels as part of the display. And also there is another photograph, uh, sorry, postcard that has a Bactrian camel and uh, commemorates the visit of uh, the Taisho prince to the uh, Kyoto Zoo. And um, it actually has one section in the center is the camel picture. But then there is like in the Japanese common style of the era, graphics that accompany this image. And in the graphics, you see pyramids and palm trees and sort of visions from, I would say, Egypt or, you know, the, the Middle East proper, rather than um, a display of the camels in Japan, it sort of associates the camels with Western Asia and the, the Arab world, to put it um, into this way. Other uh, pictures were used in a, in an interesting way. As I mentioned, um Realist styles became very uh, important in the late 19th century, the entry of yoga, the uh, Western style um, painting into the Japanese arena, and then the birth of Nihonga out of this trend. So um, the Kyoto Art School sent its um, students to the zoo to sit in front of the camels and draw them. But that was not very easy. So what they did, they took pictures and went back to the studio and then drew the camels from the photographs taken at the zoo and being the reference to the drawings later on uh, being produced in the studio. So photography is kind of a secondary uh, role here um, as part of a device that allows a more uh, realistic drawing in the Nihonga style, in this case, being recruited from the zoo into the studio to allow the um, practitioners, the students in this case, to draw more realistic camels as they um, were using photography as a reference to the animals. Although the the, the the final drawing can be very mythical or absolutely not in the context of realist depiction of um, camels. Nevertheless the the animal itself, its proportions, its facial features, etc is being related to through photography. And then um, as I mentioned, photography takes over and goes into the continent and uh, accompanies uh, several cases of um, um, camels uh, photographers accompanied. It's a whole chapter in Japanese history of photography, how photography actually um, made the invasion of Manchuria being brought either as news back to Japan as part of the different journals and magazines that displayed the images of Manchuria and explaining to the audience the rationale and the um, benefits of this Japanese adventure into the continent. And so in this sense, uh, photography had um, uh, a special role and images of camels are, you know, uh, vast books and vast journals and magazines of different displays of um, the railroad uh, company that took over Manchuria and the agriculture in vast... Areas and the coal mining and the iron mining, all these uh, productions. Camels are part of a larger body of uh, photography that accompanied this uh, period and um, uh, belief in Japanese, let's say, superiority. I can expand on that in a minute, but um, it's not that photographers went to dedicated special attention to camels, but that camels were part of the larger story, the larger narrative of Manchuria that they wanted to bring back home. So I had to kind of fish out the images of camels from these large collections of images that were um, being displayed for the Japanese audience back home, sort of rationalizing or justifying this um, procedure and this invasion into Manchuria and why Japan should do that. And part of it is probably one of the most important elements or um, ideas that comes into uh, mind when you think of Manchuria and the Japanese adventure there is Pan-Asianism and how chemists played in this uh, part. So we could go back to Okakura Kakuzo, who was an art historian who wrote, um, as far as I remember, in 1908, a book um, about um, Japan in Asia and um, uh, wrote the sentence that Asia is one. His ideology was actually sort of binary in the sense that he wanted to place Asia versus. Um, the European, the modern, the, the white superiority, and actually to, to argue for the um, um, the superiority or the difference of Asia to Europe, and that the Europeans didn't understand Asia, and that Asia had its own lineage and history, connecting India, China, and Japan, leaving Korea out and um, making uh, an argument for um, a Japanese connection into Asia in a kind of an idealistic way and uh, a lineage that created Japan as a museum of Asia and something that kept everything. And his idea was recruited in the 1930s by the ideological process that justified the invasion into Manchuria as Asia is one, and therefore we can take this up, but now Japan is modern, now Japan is a leading force, and Japan can bring modernization and enlightenment into the continent, and therefore it is justified. But with a forked tongue, this sort of um, uh, argument of Japan as a superior modern power of enlightenment, at the same time, Asia was placed as a low, primitive, uneducated, unenlightened uh, place and therefore anything Asian or not Japanese was associated with something that we can um, disregard, have a pejorative view of and place everything as unworthy. And so um, I would say that camels at that stage, and I mentioned before, they're already transformed into beasts of burden. They're not curiosity. They're not exotic. They're not looked upon as something strange and exciting, but now they are just recruited into the military and the... um, Um, you can see tons of photographs showing camel caravans carrying cannons across the Manchurian desert towards China. You can see the uh, Manchurian themselves um, being uh, accompanying those camels, uh, leading the camels. I guess Japanese didn't know how to handle camels at that point, so they had to take the camels with their uh, owners to to lead them around. But also there's a very interesting... um, 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 painting that um, was dedicated to Kitachirakawa, who was uh, the commander of the Manchurian frontier in the late 1930s and uh, came from the royal family. He was the son of Meiji Emperor Seventh's daughter. So he was a a grandson of the Meiji emperor. So he was a direct royal. And um, his early life, his album, the photographs of his early life show definitely a royal style of life. And uh, again, you know, royal style in this stage is following or adapting the styles of the royal family in the UK, in in the English royal family and um so he was riding white horses and uh, flying airplanes and uh, having fancy dinners and his uh, wedding was in western style with long gowns and everything so i could see all these uh, displays in a a special album that was produced after his death but the kitashirakawa family um wanted to have a special commemorial uh, image of his. And uh, believe it or not, this image I found at the Yushu Khan, which is the museum attached to Yasukuni Shrine. And to those of you who don't know, the Yasukuni Shrine was established in 1868 as the national shrine that enshrines the spirits of those who died for the sake of the national state of Japan, meaning this is an ultra nationalist venue associated with right and extreme right uh, politics in Japan, a very kind of red flag place for anyone thinking liberal or, um, you know, Japan in the world in a more democratic and equal sense. So the Museum of the Yasukuni shrine and shrines, different aspects of Japan's militarization, invasion into Asia, or, uh, you know, Japan is supreme power of um, Asia. I wouldn't even mention other terms they're using uh, to kind of differentiate the superiority of Japan from Asia. So, I went to this museum because, of course, it's very interesting to anyone interested in modern history of Japan. And I was shocked to find this painting that, apart from the image of Kitashirakawa, who stands up front as the commander, the great leader of Manchuria, the the Kwantung army of the, of Japan that invaded Manchuria in the early 30s, Um, But on the other side of the picture, there are uh, four camels and a a group of Manchurian people, Mongolian people, sitting on the ground in their gowns and um, boots, you know, very typical kind of traditional uh, Manchurian-Mongolian dress, and the Japanese leaders, Kitashirakawa, and his... uh, Um, The commanders with him are dressed in modern style, Japanese military uniform, holding uh, their weapons, etc. And so the the picture wanted to tell about, again, the superiority of Japanese military, this leader, etc., who was killed. His image, again, was drawn according to a photograph, which I was able to, to find in his album. So, again, this relationship between photography and painting while photography provides the um, accurate reference to reality. But on the other side, the painter, who is uh, Fukazawa Shouzo, painted uh, the four camels and the Manchurian. But the big surprise in this painting and probably hints to some of the conflicts within the Japanese story is that Fukuzawa placed himself among the Manchurians and not with the leaders. And that is a very important aspect. I, You know, it's not something that you see on first sight. It's not It's not something that comes up front. I don't, I'm not sure if the um, curators at the Yushu Khan are aware of this point. They wanted the Kitashirakawa, the family ordered this painting. So it's a kind of this subversive language which is existent in the arts for centuries that painters used being ordered to paint being paid you know by the bourgeois and being uh, given assets to make their painting and they made their living and it was important for them to get the monies but they do put you know that this little worm in the apple that tells you everything is rotten in this country or In this case, the painter putting himself among the Manchurans rather than his Japanese colleagues and kind of telling us something different. And I looked into that and I found out that Fukazawa, well, he was stationed as a painter. Japan, Japanese military had a painting division actually led by Yokoyama Taikan, um, who was one of the most ultranationalist leaders of the Japanese arts scene in the 1920s, even. All his, these paintings of Fuji with a red sun is uh, produced in his studio. So uh, Yokoyama was um, the high commander of the painter's unit. And uh, by the way, um, Fujita Tsuguharu, who spent uh, decades in France, came back and was recruited into this unit and produced some of the most nationalist and um, really painful paintings in his period in Japan before he returned to France and Switzerland in the 50s. But um, uh, So Fukuzawa was part of this unit. He was stationed in um, Manchuria. And while he was there... He started the Association of Manchurian Painters, Manchurian-Mongolian, Manmon, he calls it, the Association of Manchurian and Mongolian Painters. And he was dedicating special lessons. He invited people to do studio practice, etc., in his place in Manchuria. And was trying to help them to establish a local, national, specific language of painting that will reflect the unique or the um, uh, special aspects of their life and their place, which is very interesting because, you know, he was a Japanese, an invader, somebody was coming in the name of the big empire, but still associating. Associating himself with the locals and trying to define something very different to what he was, you know, meant to be, and uh, and and the painting actually tells this truth. While he puts himself with the camels and the Mongolians, Manchurians, and versus the Japanese military, he is not in spirit with them. And the other person, which is in the Japanese side, is a Mongolian leader leader called Prince Wang, who was actually a collaborator, somebody who um, betrayed the interest of the Mongolian Manchurian people and collaborated with the Japanese military in their... um, sort of, you know, military uh, mission within Mongolia and he was uh, um the prince de wang was later um jailed and there was a, a big story about his collaboration with the Japanese after the war. And by the way, at the background of this scene the the, the upfront scene with Kitashirakawa de Wang and the the local uh, commander of the Japanese army and on the other side the camels and the Mongols and the painter Fukazawa At the background, we see a scene of a herder with some sheep and a Japanese soldier with a club hitting him. So as a very, not explicit up front, but explicitly showing violence of Japanese military towards the local in the background. And the last plane of the image, the last part is the big, the Great wall of China with the the gate where um in Manchuria where they were stationed at that point so it's a very complex image with I think a very complex uh story about um how um Japanese military taking over how photography is being um hidden within the painting as a device, something that we can see the albums around it as informants, something that brings the the data that being afterwards um prepared into uh the painting.
1: Yeah, So I think this is a really interesting description of um, how painting as a representational technique and also as a sort of political tool lives on um, with photography, even as photography in some ways becomes the dominant medium uh, in modernity. Uh, And so it both has this propaganda value and it has this Uh, subversive value that you've talked about. Uh, And I thought this was a really interesting, particularly the the propaganda side of it, was an interesting counterpoint with uh, Kaobata Ryushi's paintings of uh, the 12th century warrior Yoshitsune uh, represented as Genghis Khan. Um, I wanted to see if you could talk about why this series of paintings is important uh, as art, as history, as propaganda in the context of Japanese imperialism in the 1930s.
2: Okay. Yeah, the Maruki, case, the um, Kawabata Hidashi's case is very interesting, and I will try to put it in in um, relation to Maruki Iri's case of uh, a camel drawing that was created at the very same period and actually caused um, rivalry and uh, dispute between these two painters. So Kawabata Ryushi was highly acclaimed Nihonga painter. Nihonga is a style that started only in the 1890s, but quickly gained much attention, much claim in the Japanese arena, although it's hardly known in the West. In Japan, it's the main language of artistic production up to this day and much more expensive, say, from uh, other styles. And um, so Kawabata Ryushi was one of the leaders of the style. I mentioned before um, Yokoyama, um, as Yukoyama Taikan as their the very leader, but Kawabata was uh, probably one of his uh, colleagues. And uh, Kawabata joins this... Um, Flood of nationalism and excitement about Japanese superiority and Japanese uh, leading Asia, etc., etc., which produced some of the most painful aspects of uh, Japanese modern history, and um, one of them was the attempt, the his uh, attempt by historians to establish. Um, a possibility to identify Japanese historical justification for the invasion into Asia. And one of the attempts was um, created by reconstructing the mythological story that... Yoshitsune, the uh, Minamoto no Yoshitsune, one of the most important figures of the early Kamakura period when uh, Japan went um, through the collapse of Heian and the establishment of Karamakura. Yoritomo, his brother, was the first shogun and he was very jealous of Yoshitsune and therefore Yoshitsune had to run for his life and ended his life in seppuku, in um, self um uh, killing by sword. Um, and according to that Japanese legend, by the time he killed himself, he was reborn in Mongolia as Genghis Khan. Now, if you check the dates, it doesn't work because uh, there is a gap of about 30 years between that. When actually, Genghis Khan was born 30 years or 20 years before um, Yoshitsune was dead and I mean there is a certain overlap in their lives but definitely not the kind of thing that uh, this myth tried to establish as if uh, Yoshitsune was dead and then Genghis Khan born nevertheless it served right the uh, nationalist propaganda and the justification for uh, the invasion of Manchuria, and therefore certain politicians made use of it Sort of, you know, we have historical roots in this fact. And um, Kawabata decided to make a painting that will demonstrate this moment or this justification. And therefore, he made a huge painting, 7 meters point two wide, uh, made of six panels, and currently a display at... uh, Memorial Museum of uh, Kawabata in Ota district of Tokyo. And the image itself shows Yoshitsune sitting in the center surrounded by seven camels around him and one white horse. So the interpretation I gave this painting is that The white horse was the vehicle, the the animal he rode to come to Manchuria. So it's left behind, it's on the side. But now sitting among the camels, like I mentioned before with uh, Fukazawa, is being part of Manchuria, being at home and this land. The camels there are very uh, beautiful and all painted white. This sort of, you know, reflecting the the white horse as a, a royal symbol. Um, for example, the Showa Emperor Hirohito is photographed several times in, during the 1920s riding white horse. Shirayuki was the name of his horse, and so the white horse, probably adopted from the UK, is a symbol of um, royalty. And Yoshitsune being part of the system of the shogunate being rejected out of it, but still, you know, uh, very highly praised and highly loved uh, figure in Japanese history is associated with this part. And therefore, everything is white around him, the white horse, the white camels, etc. And um, he's still in his samurai uh, garment, the battle garment, But the camels, so he's kind of a mixture, bringing together the Japanese aspect, the military aspect through his um, samurai uh, outfit. But he's among the camels, he's in the desert, and... um, being at home in Mongolia. Now, I want to mention Maruki Iri's image of a camel that was painted at the very same year. We're talking 1938. That's a year after the start of the invasion of China in the Second Sino-Japanese War. And Maruki painted a very tactile, a very... um, material camel, which you can see every hair of. It's kind of a an image of, it, it's only two panels, not as large as Maruki's, um, but it's a camel and sort of sort of playing on realism, not from the image, but realism from the surface, from the material aspect of camelity, you know, something about... Um, what is being camel in the sense of the material, the bodily, the physical aspect of being camel rather than the image of the camel. Quite interesting take on this issue. But um, they both were part of the White Horse uh, group of painters and they had annual um, um, exhibitions in Tokyo. And Maruki had his painting being on display several months before Yushi's. and Ryushi was on the committee that decided which painting to bring uh, to the exhibition and he was furious that uh, Maruki painted the camel before Kawabata Ryushi had a chance to display his and sort of he was first to put a camel while uh, Ryushi was uh, on the second, that made a huge rivalry between them Um, he didn't believe that Maruki came to the idea to paint a camel on his own, he thought he stole the idea from him or something along these lines and they never spoke to each other after that they became complete enemies Maruki made his name later on with the Hiroshima panels, which he painted with his wife, which is a very interesting mix of um, charcoal drawing and oil painting and ink, Um, kind of an interesting mixture of Western style drawing and uh, Japanese traditional use of uh, ink. But um, although, you know, I have the two images in the book so the audience can see that, um, they're very, very different in style and message. Maruki's is this very down-to-earth kind of image and brings the materiality of the camel, while Lucis is a very mythological and kind of collaborative with this ultra-nationalist um, mythologic. A mythology of uh, how uh, Yoshitsune represents Japanese interest in Mongolia, etc. They're very, very different, but still, you know, in a micro space of the. the Hakuba, the the White Horse Association of Painters and their exhibitions, it seemed like if two people are painting camels, there must be some rivalry between them, which of course is, you know, it's only in their imagination, has nothing to do with the reality of the paintings and their message and their uh, presence.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. The the rivalry that uh the, in between these these two painters, um, and it's it's a fascinating way to sort of uh, end up uh, in the, the with with the the pre-war uh, and, and wartime stuff to think about how th- there's this much larger political context uh, to the painting, but there's also you know these little squabbles, uh, these little you know squabbles between painters at, at an individual level. Uh, there's something sort of fascinating to me personally about that uh, but i do want to uh, move on to the final chapter uh, camels in the global war global world excuse me uh, the post-war period where you get to uh hirayama equals peace caravan murals in hiroshima and noguchi rika's uh, images of camels in the deserts of central asia and arabia um t- to me in a sense there uh, and, and you touched on this a little bit in the the, the early stages of the podcast there's a kind of uh, deep Politicized politics or political depoliticization in the way that there's a that the the images are taken out of context and decontextualized and they're put into these um, they're 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 sort of floating uh, without real context um, and and how is that either similar or different from what comes before them and what does it sort of mean about these images?
2: Yes. So, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm a researcher of contemporary art. This is my starting point and therefore my encounter with Noguchi's and later with Hirayama was my uh, starting point. I went into the historical images as part of my curiosity of the role of camels in the Japanese imagination, but really chapter four was the genesis of my research and therefore Um, My encounter with Hirayama is uh, very significant to understanding the whole book. Hirayama himself um, was probably the most important central figure of the Nihonga world post-war, also the richest of all Japanese painters and the leader of the Nihonga Association. So obviously, nobody ever touched him. Nobody ever wrote anything about his uh, work except for flattery and very, you know, kind of highly praising his endeavor and uh, images. However, um, I am not part of this world. I'm not part of the Nihonga world. I'm not even a researcher of that. Um, kind of style. I'm more concentrating in my work on photography and video art, but that gave me a certain courage to look into that with a critical eye, and to try and understand how Hirayama positioned the camels in his world. So probably first about. So I said he's a very central figure in the Nihonga world, but also uh, Hibakusha himself. He was born in um, Onomichi, which is uh, part of the Hiroshima Ken, the Hiroshima Prefecture, and uh, spent the years. He was born nineteen thirty, so he spent the years of the war in his hometown in Onomichi, and um, actually was considered Hibakusha. He wasn't affected directly by the the bomb, but anyone living in Hiroshima Prefecture was. Um, Uh, under this kind of uh, definition. So um, in this way, um, Hirayama became hibakusha. And I think this is how he kind of got his license to um, be the painter on display at the entry lobby of the... Memorial Museum, the Peace Memorial Museum of uh, Hiroshima. So that was the license as a person. Then the chosen subject for the display, the camel caravan, it has one uh, in daylight, which is on the front mural, as I mentioned, in the very entry into the lobby of the museum. But there's another one, which is a night image, on the other side of the building, which is the convention center for different um, conferences, etc. So, um, w- the, the question of why camels uh, goes back to a story that uh, Hirayama tells in his own biography yeah. and how that developed later on. So, in 1960, after the end, of the Olympic Games in Rome, Um, Japan was starting to prepare for the Olympic Games of 1964. And I think here I am, I heard on the radio or some sort of broadcast, just an occasional um, hearing that um, the Olympic light was now to be delivered from Rome to Tokyo and he thought to himself that it would be really great if the olympic game could travel overland from europe to japan across asia across the ancient roads of the silk road which was you know before the the um invention of flights was commonly used even today among people of central asia these roads are very highly used from um, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Kazakhstan, Western China, the Uyghur Xinjiang uh, territories. A lot of traffic is being uh, going on there with large markets and you know exchange of com- um, merchandise and commercial relationships. So. This is not just, you know, past. Of course, if we want to go from uh, Beijing to Istanbul, we don't need to do the journey for one month on camel. And um, we can take a flight for a few hours. But uh, literally, I did this uh, route from Istanbul to Beijing overland. And it's exciting and very interesting. And so... In Hirayama's imagination, like uh, the Nara to Norwich, the the possibility of connecting Japan to mainland on this route and going all the way to Europe was something that struck him. And he decided to um, look into that. Now, in a way, adopting the Okakura point of view, Asia is one, or what was, as I mentioned before, translated into pan-Asianism, which is a very negative way of understanding how Japan is being part of Asia. And uh, what Hirayama did, he, um, now, you know, Japan is a peaceful country, it's pacifist, no militarism, no uh, fantasies, fantasies of uh, leadership or conquering or whatever the uh, previous um, discourses led to. Now it's about peace and Buddhism and um, everything is um, about um, collaboration. But, you know, if you look at these paintings, those in the Hiroshima Memorial Museum or other versions has tens of versions of uh, the camel caravans in different parts of uh, Central Asia, up to, I think he's also having Palmyra, which is in Syria. So even to Western Asia is part of his um, territory of this place. So these tons of images. I saw a, an exhibition in Shiga Prefecture in Moriyama and it has endless, endless halls, you know, the museum exhibition in different halls of these camel cars. I think I counted like 50 different images of camel cars. It's not It's not something occasional. It's like a main theme in um, Hirayama's work. So um, these Im- images of the camels, camel caravans across Asia are now to to present a kind of peaceful message, partly Buddhist, carrying knowledge and um, spirituality from India to Japan, but also across Asia, from Western Asia to the desert, to Japan, etc., and again, you know, as I mentioned before, this is a place where people leave. Either they have commercial relationships, but we are also aware of the disastrous condition of Afghanistan, the the, the conflicts within Iran, Syria, etc. I mean, kind of making this idealized world of world peace, is, oh, you know, Buddhist messages, etc., and completely ignoring the reality of these places and what's going on in the world, and trying to make this kind of fake peace or fake uh, displays of uh, everything is fine and Japan is now in peace and no conflicts, everything is lovely and caravans and flowers and Buddha images. It's also kind of a a lie being told, which I think, you know, um, putting that up front as a centerpiece does harm to Japanese world image and sort of serving as a cover, sort sort of a camouflage to reality rather than, you know, kind of, I'm not saying that, you know, painters have to paint reality, but constantly um, trying to send messages of peace and tranquility, uh, etc., is also um, creating um, an ambivalent sense with a viewer of, the messages, you know, vis-a-vis, you know, the the problems we are facing in this life, and another point which is very important for me in this sense. Hirayama went dozens of times, many many times, to Asia, to Central Asia, um, and he has tons of his himself photographed in India, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Northern India, in uh, even Syria. Persia, different places, and the sketchbooks, tons of sketchbooks in his uh, studio. So when I went to his studio, the studio is, by the way, in Kamakura, and because he moved to Kamakura at a certain point and built a huge house with uh, his studio. And I went into the sketchbook to see what he was drawing during his visits to um, Central Asia. And to my huge surprise, There's not even a single sketch of a living camel. He never drew on place. He never drew a camel. And um, there are sketches of camels, camel figures, figurines, even, uh, different statues or objects. And there are photographs of camels taken uh, by his wife, Michiko, who took uh, images of camels in photography. Um, So I believe Hirayama's source of um, reference was either photography or photo books or other um, um, illustrations that he could put his hand on during his visits that he uh, used as source or the photographs of his wife or even um, still images of statues and figurines, etc. But there's no live drawing and I mentioned that because as I mentioned in the Nihonga tradition those uh, students in Kyoto went to the Kyoto Zoo to collect live images and live drawings and photography that they took themselves before the um, before they were um, drawing and painting their Nihonga style paintings but here I am I didn't even attempt to make live drawings of the camel's probably was more interested in the landscape, in the backgrounds that he put into his images. But the stillness of the images... And so the chemical carvings doesn't reflect anything from the real or from direct viewing or anything like that. They are completely in the realm of imaginary, symbolic... um, and I would say, ideologically, coming from thoughts like Okakura's "Asia is One" or pan-Asianist ideology that accompanied this. And so, the very last artist I discuss, who was the very first artist I encountered from in my uh, processing to this journey, is a uh, Noguchi Rika, and, um, so in my conversation with her um I think at a certain point she became very apologetic in understanding that you know unconsciously she actually worked walk, walked in the same path of her uh of the past artists that we have um uh shown in the book and in our conversation today of the exoticized or even idealized image of um, Asia an imaginary place. And probably the exposure of this um, specific display of, you know, the beautiful camels in the desert is the fact that the caregivers and, you know, the human world about, around these the camels are actually property. They're very expensive in the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates and people obviously are very rich, the owners, the owners are wealthy and they hold the camels as part of their property, part of their pride and their status within their own society because this is basically, the UAE is a Bedouin society and holding camels is part, important part, of being, um, holding a prestige uh, position, but the caregivers are not part of it. As we know, 90% of the UAE population is guest workers being hired and employed in very unflattering uh, conditions, probably in their terms, coming from poor countries, this is very good salary, but they're not protected in any way. And they represent, you know, this kind of uh, global hiring systems of people traveling around the world to do all the unwanted jobs in wealthy countries that uh, hire them to do that. So in an unconscious way, the series also displays on one hand uh, local traditions of... Um, the camel, and it's uh, important place in um, the UAA tradition and culture, but also brings in the global aspect of uh, trafficking of guest workers and low-paid jobs around the world. And, well, the information is not there up front. It's part of the text that was written by Minami, the curator, that tells us uh, more details about who are the people being as- alongside with the camels. And I think um, Noguchi realized on a later stage that um, the fact that she did not place this problematic relationship in her series, but kind of continued the cover coverage of displaying camels and displaying the the caregivers in a beautiful, aestheticized way without claiming the problematics that underlie this kind of relationship is something that probably she would have done differently. But nevertheless, um, I think that Minami's text and probably my own contribution to this series helps in understanding it in a broader context and bringing it further on. So um, the last uh, chapter, the fourth chapter, deals with these complexities of the post-war period in Japan, probably trying to understand that, you know, just declaring pacifism and um, economic, growth, etc., as the main interest of Japan is only part of the story, and we can look into that in a more complex way. And therefore, my conclusion sets um, a decolonial tone to the whole uh, journey we took in the sense that... You know, if we look at camels in a Japanese context, and we can probably try to understand how is what are Japan's plans for its relationship with Asia? Does it still claim itself to be part of the Western world and ignore Asia, or is recent history with the rise of China in the last twenty years, etc., and the economic power of Taiwan and Singapore and India rising, etc., sets Japan on a different platform that it has to reconsider its relationship with mainland, the continent, beyond the um, hierarchical relations of Europe on the top, Asia on the bottom, and try to establish a different view and different involvement and different um, understanding of its own place within the Asian sphere.
1: Yes. um, Thank you for uh, bringing us full circle uh, back to the original interest uh, that got you to this project. I think that's obviously a wonderful place for us to end up today. Uh, And I do want to thank you for uh, your generosity with your time. Uh, The last thing I wanted to ask you before we sign off here is, uh, now that you've got the book out, uh, is there anything else that you're working on that's uh, exciting you these days?
2: Oh, yes. So, as I mentioned, there is an article I wrote about uh, the representation of the um, Jap- uh, Israeli Palestinian conflict in uh, Japanese cinema. But moreover, this brings me to the Red Japanese Army um, that was stationed in Lebanon and actually was deeply involved with the Palestinian Liberation and the People's Liberation Organization of Palestine. And um George Habash had close relationship with uh, Shigenobu Fusako, the leader of the Red Japanese Army. so I'm looking into that I think this is also a very volatile yet very interesting subject and my uh, second monograph is now about um, war memory or specifically perpetrator. Um, memory and guilt being on display in Japanese video art. Um, I consider the work of three Japanese artists, Yamashiro Chikako from Okinawa, um, Koizumi Meiro, who's working on the subject of kamikaze, and Morimune Yasumasa. that uh, specifically one of his recent video works on a reinterpretation of his take on the raising of the flag on Iwojima. And how he made that into a piece that actually looks into the complexity of defeat from the Japanese side. While, while it's the American side, obviously the image of victory, it also contains implicitly within it the defeat of Japan. So, yeah, this is what I'm working on. Sort of kind of working into more volatile military... Um, unpleasant territories, but nevertheless, very interesting and very uh, powerful for me. Well,
1: excellent. Uh, I will look forward to checking some of that out. Uh, But for now, uh, thank you so much again for your time uh, and take care.
2: Thank you very much, Nathan.